Welcome to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you like it, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street in Boston for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org. Good morning. Good morning. This reading from Jeremiah 31, 27 to 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another, or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. The reading Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose your heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to the uh, judge and saying, Grant me justice against my opponents. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not grant judge justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them and yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith 
on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our reading from the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg this morning comes from his book on faith, sections 13 and 17. Caring originates in a desire to do something good. Since what is good loves what is true, this desire leads to a desire for truth and therefore to the recognition of what is true, which is faith. By these steps in proper sequence, a desire to do something good takes form and turns into caring. Faith does not accomplish anything good or useful by itself, but only from caring as its source. Faith, in fact, is just caring in its middle phase. So it is a fallacy to think that faith brings forth what is good the way a tree brings forth fruit. The tree is not faith. The tree is the person. Here ends the reading. I don't know if anybody watches cooking shows out there. I know at least one person who does. Charlie definitely does. There's, okay, there's a couple of you. So some of you might know who Alton Brown is, right? Alton Brown is a pretty big celebrity chef. Um, he said something once that I'd never really thought of before, but he said, never make a sandwich out of bread you wouldn't eat alone. Sounds kind of crazy for some, because I don't know about you, there's some bread out there that I don't want to eat. Like, if you just, uh, there's some bread that I refer to as being styrofoam. I don't know if you've ever had the bread. I'm not going to brand bash anything, but it's white. It has the shape of bread. It just has no flavor. But Alton Brown says, if you want to have a good sandwich, you should eat a sandwich with bread that you would eat by itself. And that enhances the flavor. In fact, he said, you should be willing to eat any of the ingredients by itself. Because let's be honest, if it's not good alone, it's not going to enhance the overall sandwich flavor. In addition to that, he said certain types of bread are good for certain things. Has anyone ever tried peanut butter and olive loaf? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like it would taste good, right? I'm not, some people might like it. It sounds horrible to me. My point being is, breads that are good to eat alone aren't always good for every ingredient. So we go to people who we respect and who we trust and who have culinary expertise to learn from. And by the way, it's... Since Julia Child did that first, like, real cooking show, right, she broke the rules when she did that show. I don't know how many of you know this. Up until that point, the lessons of the Cordon Bleu were not things that you put on television. These were trade secrets for chefs, and she really shifted the world. Now everybody can be a gourmet cook, right? We can have all sorts of fancy things at home that we never had before. But it means going to someone to seek a new understanding. If, let's say, you want to impress someone, like you have a good birthday coming up this week and you want to have the best meal, you don't say, I'm going to go to somebody who's never cooked before 
and ask them what recipe I should have. And you don't say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to walk into the store and I'm going to buy any package that looks good and I'm just going to put it all in a pot and boil it for an hour. Right? You don't do that. You, you go to someone because you want to seek something that's special. Because the desire to feed that special meal comes from a place of goodness inside of you. So you, t- you seek truth to help that goodness have life. Now I use that example because that example is actually pretty easy, I think, for most of us to understand, right? Because we certainly wouldn't ever get our information from people who don't have expertise, right? That just is silly. And yet, when I look around the world, I look at a lot of people who, when it's not something simple like what's yummy food, And what's Alton Brown going to show us the science behind it today, right? When it's not that issue, when it's larger issues, we turn our back on people who have, for their entire life, studied, researched, and worked in certain areas. And we oftentimes let our personal opinion, which is unresearched and unknown, have primacy over people who have spent their entire lives working in something. Is that... Does that seem silly to say that that doesn't sound like a good idea? Our reading from the New Testament today, when most people read it, they see this simple truth, which is if you just ask someone enough, you're going to get what you want. Right? That's a simple truth. If you ask enough, eventually you're going to wear the person down and they'll give you what you want. Do you think that person's actually going to give you what you want? If their intent is not actually to help you, to care about you, or to love you, do you think what they give you actually has your best interest in mind? I'm guessing not. I'm guessing the judge in Israel, when he was willing to seek justice, he did not actually seek the purest, best form of justice for the widow, but just enough to get the widow off his back. Right? You see, all of us, we all have desires that are good and loving desires. We all have parts of ourselves that are reaching out to feel joy, to feel fulfillment, to feel close to God. But I have a question. If we don't go to the experts, and by experts I'm not just saying clergy, I'm talking about going to God more than the clergy, but if we don't take the questions to the right places, what do you think is going to happen? We are going to get a judge who doesn't care about us, who doesn't care about other people, filling the goal enough to make us happy. Now this story is written at a time when there is a different sense of community identity. I don't know how many people are aware of biblical community and the fact that in that day and age, you just didn't disregard people in the way that we disregard people now. You know, we see certain things like a widow, and we look at that and make an assumption that the widow was an outcast of society. Well, that's actually not biblically or historically true. 
they talk about the widow not being able to own property and having all these things. However, we have documents showing women exchanging property in the first century when the Bible was written. We have documents showing the honored place that widows had within the community. But oftentimes, when we read the Bible, we make assumptions about what's going on in the story. And they're assumptions that are based on things that maybe are misunderstandings, things that we just read and use some of our own understanding of what we want the Bible to be around. But back then, relationships were not as transactional as they are today. Um, there was a time when companies felt an obligation not only to their employees and to their communities. There was a particular economist, Milton Friedman, who shifted all of that and told companies that their highest obligation was not to the community, was not to their worker, was not even to their customer, but to their shareholders. And that if they performed economically well and benefited their shareholders, that they would then, through that wealth, benefit all of society. It is the beginning of what one might call trickle-down economics. Well, guess what? It doesn't work like that. You see, when we have problems, when we want to fulfill our needs in ways where we go to money or the world as an, act, as an answer, what we get are corporations that move towards not caring about their people, not caring about the product for their customers, only insofar as profit can supersede that care. I mean, it, we are investing in a world of widgets and not in the people who are next to each other. This is a judge that does not care about people or fear God. In scripture, this was actually considered sinful. It was a violation of the covenant. The leader was supposed to have divine responsibility for their people. The neighbor was supposed to love their neighbor. Citizens and their relationships to one another were not supposed to be transactional to the point that it was illegal to lend people money for interest. Right? We love to talk about biblical values in our society and how the Bible doesn't like those people and the Bible like, doesn't like that people, but the Bible doesn't like bankers. Period. There's nothing scriptural around it. With that, I'm not a, I don't dislike bankers. I'm just saying we read into the Bible the evil that we want to see in the Bible because if there's a group of people who we naturally don't like, we use our own selves to justify it. We don't go to the experts and say, God, what does it mean to read the Bible from love? We create even a transactional relationship with God. The purpose of prayer is for me to get what I want. It happens all the time. I know I've done it. I'm not blaming other people. I've sat there and said, God, if you'd only do this for me, I really need it. I will be the best person I can possibly be if you just do this for me. I turned my relationship to God into a transactional relationship where I expected a quid pro quo. 
what I was doing, and I know this is going to sound pretty trivial, I was walking down the aisles of the store grabbing the things that I saw and putting it in my cart and baking it the way I wanted to bake it without ever actually asking God, what is it that I should be doing? You see, when I stem my actions from a place of seeking to fill my desire, I am looking in the wrong place. I am looking toward that worldly judge. So I want to, we can ask the worldly judge all sorts of things. But I want to give you another take on this story. So most of the time in the Bible, when you mention a marriage, a wife, a groom, most of those times in scripture, it's always about the relationship between God and God's people. It's about the marriage of the divine qualities in us. So what if the widow is not actually a story about somebody who just needs something? What if the story of the widow is actually about a part of us that's missing and the widow is seeking it? The fact that there's a widow who is thirsting for justice is actually her desire to try and unite herself with what is missing. I mean, think about it. The story, if it just was about justice and about asking for what you want, it didn't need to be a widow, right? Could have been a kid. Could have been a little girl. Could have been a bigger boy. Could have been a grandparent. Could have been a husband. Could have been a wife. If the point of the story is just about someone not getting what they wanted and asking enough until they did, it could have been in any character. But it was a widow with the understanding that the widow symbolizes the people of God no longer connecting to God. The marriage between people and God had gotten broken. The justice that was being sought for was because the woman in her looking to the worldliness And by the woman, I don't mean a woman, but a person in looking to the worldliness around them to get their problems answered just wasn't getting a true connection to God. So again, Swedenborg, in a highly philosophical way, talks about all of this, and he talks about these concepts of love and wisdom flowing from God into our human containers and separation and so forth. And so I'm going back to that bread thing for a second. I'm going to try and make it really simple. Swedenborg talking about love and wisdom. We can use bread. And I'm going to use a a very simple bread concept. The love is dough, and the shape the bread in is wisdom. Does that make sense? So, for instance, you need to have both. You need to have shape, and you need to have the material that makes up the loaf. We could have some very good Hollywood budget plastic bread, right? It would be in the shape of bread. It would, in fact, probably be painted so well you could not tell the difference between good bread and the Hollywood bread, right? That's what I'm talking about. But yet it's hollow. No one here would call that bread, right? We'd call it a prop. The bread 
looks a certain way, has a certain substance. You can see its form, but it also has a quality. If you, if you ordered apple bread and were thinking, I'm going to spread this honey on this apple bread, and you bit into it and it was olive loaf, you'd notice a difference, right? Olive loaf isn't the same thing. So for something to be an apple bread, it has a certain form and a certain substance that makes it that way. And what Swedenborg talks about when he looks at this passage is he said that for the apple bread to truly be apple bread, it has to have apples in it. Does that make sense? You can't have apple bread made with bananas. It just doesn't work. Has anybody had apple bread made of bananas? Tastes a lot like banana bread. It has the same texture as apple bread. It might even have the same look on the outside, but when you bite into it, it's not the same thing. Swedenborg is saying our desire to do good is like the apple in the apple bread. If we don't have that at the center of what we are doing, everything we are doing, even though it looks a different way, isn't actually love and faith if we are missing the crucial ingredient. But he says if we have the crucial ingredient, if we have the crucial ingredient, that ingredient will compel us towards finding the truth. So when we eat that apple bread, it kind of becomes potential energy in our body. It feeds our body, and then it gives us the energy to do good in the world. So it seems silly, but Swedenborg is is trying to touch on something here when we talk about faith. Faith isn't about only one part of the loaf. It doesn't matter the shape you put it in. It has to have the apple in it. Good acts must have good within them. They must have a desire to do good. And when you have that desire to do good, you perpetually want to be a better and better person. The reason why that's important is when we are sitting there saying, man, I've been praying for days and God just hasn't given me what I want. Are you sure you have all the right ingredients? Are you sure that you're actually praying to God and you're not praying to the world? Because we can mistake God for a plastic loaf of bread. We can have things that we think look like God that are not God. We can think that if I just get that new Tesla for my son's birthday, he's going to let me drive it. No. We can think that getting these things of the world are going to make us happier. But guess what happens after we get the new iPhone? Oh my gosh, next year, do you know what happened? Wait, hold on, that's kind of playing with the future and past. Next year, do you know what happened? Because I'm I'm psychic. A new iPhone came out. It had a better camera. It was faster. It did more. This one's screen was the perfect size, whether it's bigger or smaller. I don't know what your preference is, but next year's model is better. And guess what happened to this iPhone that was going to complete your life? It's old. What happened to the car that's going to complete your life that breaks down on the side of the road? What happens 
to the thing that we are trying to grasp at that we think if we just get this one thing, we'll be complete, we'll be happy. It's us looking to this world to solve eternal problems. When we do things that are loving to our neighbors, loving to our friends, loving to other people, we are touching eternity in a way that we don't with the iPhone. You see, the iPhone, it's, it's extinct next year, but the joy that you feel from actually helping someone, it stays with you for a lifetime, and you never sit back and say, oh, the next model of helping someone is going to be so much better. You actually say, I want more of that one particular experience. When we actually approach things from a place of love and care and concern, when we are touching the divine in our actions, we are actually becoming the people that God wanted us to become. When you are asking the question to the right person, you do not lose heart. When you are asking the question to the wrong person, and I don't know if you've asked questions to people where you've stood in line for ages, and you get to the front of the line, and they say, oh, I'm sorry, that's line number five. When you ask the wrong person, you just want to leave. But when you ask the right person the right question, you get the answer that you want. It feels good. And so I would argue that as we sit here praying and our prayers aren't being answered, my question is, are you just walking down a grocery store pulling off random items? Are you standing in the wrong line? Are you trying to eat a hollow loaf? Or are you actually asking the right questions to the right person are you really looking for happiness from the outside world versus looking to happiness from the inner or the eternal world? I would argue that the use of widow in this passage, seeking justice from someone who doesn't care about what justice is, is a part of the human condition that we practice over and over and over again. And the statement about God coming to earth, not finding any faith, isn't about God judging this world, but it's about the fact that we aren't actually going to God. That we are not actually asking the right question to God in order to allow God to come into our hearts and into this world. So as we sit in our dark nights of the souls, and as we struggle with why isn't God answering my prayer? I hope that we can pause and take a moment and ask ourselves, who are we asking and what are we trying to get? Because if we go to the Lord, we are asking from a place of goodness God will be there, and God will find the faith in our hearts. But if we are losing hope, if we are losing heart, I posit that we may not be asking the right question to the right person. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. 
If you liked what you hear, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street, Boston, for more. Or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org.